0: As we turn our hearts to you this morning from your word, we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us Lord, whatever it is that we're carrying this morning, whatever burdens we may have on us and the stress of life in the past or coming weeks. We pray, Lord, that that you would help us to see past all that this morning and you would clear our vision to see only you and Lord, we would hear from only you. And, of course, Lord, that we live for only you. So, Lord, make it so this morning as we turn our hearts to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the chance on Friday morning to speak to the baseball team at Callaway County High School. The coach is a good friend of mine, and and he asked if I would come out, and, and I, I don't. he didn't exactly tell me what to say. He just said, would you come out and talk to my team? And I said, well, okay. And so that's kind of, you know, that's, of course, like Clint, giving Clint the microphone. I mean, it's like, you know, you never know what somebody's going to say. You turn it over to them. And so, uh, so anyway, so I... I went out there, and they, they've got their, their district uh, tournament game tomorrow night against Murray High School, and, you know, the loser goes home, and the winner moves on, and all that stuff, and so I was there to, to inspire them, I suppose, at, at some point and whatever, and so I, I, I just talked to them about what it is that they believe about themselves and their team, because the point is that whatever you believe is going to dictate what you do. And certainly that's the way it is. And so I told them, you know, if you, you believe in, in hard work, and so if you believe in hard work as what well, you're going to work hard. And if you work hard, then good things tend to happen on the baseball field. And you, you believe so far you've had a good season, so you believe you're a good team. And so if you believe you're a good team, then odds are you'll go out and you'll play like a good team. And we just talked about those kinds of things and and so, really what I was trying to do was just convince them of what was already true. They are a good team. They've had a good season. Uh, they, they have worked hard and they, they've bought into what their coaches have talked about and so on and so forth. I was just trying to convince them of what was already true because if they believe what is already true, then that will, will determine, of course, the, the outcome of, of their season and so on. And, and certainly in life, we know in a far greater way that what we believe determines much more than a baseball game. What we believe determines the outcome of our life and what we believe as a church determines what we do in the outcome of our church and so that's our subject today is what we believe because it matters all of us operate according to a belief system even those who claim well, I have no belief system that's a belief system isn't it and so what you, you may be operating by, you have a set of beliefs that you operate by. And so what, what I want to show, hopefully this morning, very clearly is, here's what we believe as Christians. Here's what we believe is true. And here's the thing. We don't think it's true because we believe it. We believe it because it's true. Does it make sense? So let me say that again. We don't, we don't believe it and therefore then make it true. So it's not true because we believe it. We believe it because it's true. I used to tell a young people that I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell them that the depth of your belief does not alter the truth of God's Word. It doesn't matter how much you believe, it doesn't make it more true. It doesn't matter how little you believe, it doesn't make it less true. It is true, therefore I must adjust my belief accordingly. Okay, So that's where we are this morning. So we're going to talk about what we believe. We're beginning a series this morning called uh, Undefeated, talking about Jesus and his church. And some would say, well, you know, why are you going to preach a series on church? I mean, you know, that's kind of, you know, I mean, good grief. You know, you get people are already in church, you know, you know. Here, here's here's what I think. There are many, many wonderful things about our church. I could I could go on all day long, and I could list all those wonderful things. And certainly, I'd call every one of you by name because you're you're such wonderful, wonderful people. I'd call every, and if I ignored you, it wasn't on purpose, right? So, so anyway, so I, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make you all wonder if you're part of the wonderful parts of the church. Okay, but but we have so many wonderful things. If you come here and you're here for any length of time, you're going to experience some of those wonderful things about our church. Great people, and we believe you know certain things we're going to talk about this morning. But here's the thing that I know. Every church and every pastor, I can speak for myself on this. Every church and every pastor, every once in a while needs a reset. We just need to make sure, okay, are you know, let, let's take a pit stop, let's check everything out. Are we where we need to be? And, and hey, if we are, great, then it's just kind of a shot of adrenaline. Let's keep moving. If if we're not, then the scripture will show us and we'll be able to adjust and get back in line where we need to be. I don't have anything this morning that I'm going to say, hey, we're, we're way off. This series isn't about us being way off. It's more just, hey, let's take a pit stop. Let's make sure we, we are where we are. We start a, a, a new church year when the school year starts. So if we're going to launch in again, let's let's take the summertime and let's just kind of check things out, and see where we stand, and so on. How is it that the Lord would have us do our church? And so anyway, when Jesus left Earth for heaven. He sent, then sent the Holy Spirit to empower and to give life to believers and empower and give life to what he called the church. The church is here, the church universal, that is all believers, and every local church is here to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ until he returns again, and then the church will no longer be needed for that, for that mission because the mission will be complete. But in the meantime, we have a mission, we have a way that we are to operate as individual believers and as a local church, and it is not we who decide how we do that. It is God who has already decided and we who need to adjust to those things. So that's where we are this morning. Jesus began to talk about the idea of church in Matthew 16. It's the first time it was really mentioned. And and they didn't fully understand, the disciples didn't, everything that he was insinuating and everything that would happen. But he gives them a preview, if you will. And he, and he kind of shows them, here's some stuff that, that, that's going to play out, and these are the things you need to know, and so on. And, and he gives some incredible insights that over the next few weeks I hope to kind of unpack, because I think they're not only insights for us as a church, and for all believers, just universal church, but, but for us individually as well. And so if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look beginning in verse 13, and the way that this series will go is that we will look at some verses in Matthew 13, and we may stay right there on a particular Sunday. Or, in the case of what will begin next week, we'll kind of use that as, here's the topic, and we're going to go and focus on another passage of Scripture that really explains that a little bit more. So our focus each week is only going to be really on one passage, but we're going to talk uh, in the coming weeks about what is the role of the pastor. In a healthy church. What's the pastor supposed to be doing? Who is he supposed to be? We're going to talk about the role of deacons and leaders in the church. And this, just general membership. And then we're going to talk about how do we how do we rightly handle God's word. So we, we'll see this as we get through this. We're going to just talk about these different things and how as a church are we supposed to do these things, and how as individuals, and I think, and I really believe that over time as we work through this, it will make us healthier even than we already are. So that's that's why we're doing this particular series, okay? So anyway, let's read Matthew chapter thir- uh, 16, rather, verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning of verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave them, look at verse 20. He gave the Disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Here's what Jesus says the church. He says, I'm going to build my church, and it will be undefeated. There is nothing that can stop it. There is nothing that can defeat it. Not even death itself, not even death of Jesus, not even the death of believers can defeat the church. And so we are a part, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a part of an undefeated organism. Not an organization, but an organism, the church. We are undefeated, and we always will be because Jesus is. Now, verse 20 tells them that he didn't reveal everything to everybody. And so this unfolds over time. He told them, guys, hang on to this for just a little bit. It's not quite time for Jesus to reveal himself completely as a Messiah. But as scripture unfolds, we get the full picture of what he's meaning. He starts here, of course, as you look at it, with two questions. First question is, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What what are people saying? What are the, you know, the the top five answers are on the board. Who is Jesus? Who is he? What are people saying? And so the polls went out and and they said, here's, well, here's some people say John the Baptist. Some people think that, that, well, you're you're sort of maybe the the great man, maybe the reincarnation, or maybe just another example of John the Baptist, this great teacher, this highly devoted follower of God, great character and so on. And others, they said, they, they think you're Elijah, and Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, and they thought maybe, maybe this is Elijah come back to life here, and here he is, he's on earth and whatever, and he's, you know, okay, he's back, and, and now he's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. So you see they're thinking maybe he's a, he's a prophet. Because then they say, well, some people think you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a, was a prophet uh, who called for repentance and devotion, and Jesus certainly called for those things. And others say, well, maybe you're just one of the prophets. They, they didn't really know. There's a lot of confusion. And certainly we can understand Jesus hadn't revealed everything. The Pharisees had confused some people, and and Jesus didn't operate like their Messiah they thought was going to operate. So nobody really knew exactly. And then he puts it to them. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Of course, this is the the million-dollar question. To his disciples, those guys who have been following around now for quite a while, who is it that they have come to believe and come to understand that Jesus really is? Who is it that you say he is? And that's the ultimate question. It's not the crowd that we look to for these answers. The crowd is going to tell you, well, he's a great teacher, he's a good example, maybe he's sort of this mythical religious figure. If the poll was conducted today, there'd be a million different answers. And Jesus puts it to them and he says, "Now, who do you say that I am?" And Peter says, "On behalf of the rest, you are the Messiah." You are the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the the Christ, the anointed one, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You are the son of the living God. You are who you have claimed that you are all along. And his answer here is a culmination of two and a half years of walking around with Jesus and figuring him out and listening and understanding. And Jesus responds in verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed Because flesh and blood, he says, did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You're right, he says. And this insight, it hasn't come from following the crowd and from listening to different people. It came from God himself. And so according to Jesus, the question, who am I? Well, the answer is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The question remains, I believe, for us today. Peter was speaking on behalf of the group, and I can say on behalf of our church, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but I also believe there's an individual component to that as well, that we each must answer the question, who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we believe that he is? And I don't mean just the Sunday school answers. I mean really lived out, who do we believe that he is? Because who you really believe he is will be revealed in everyday life. And everything, I believe, hinges on our answer to that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Everything in your life, everything in my life, everything about our church hinges on this question. What do we believe? I I think it's by no accident that Jesus started with this. He didn't start with, hey look, one of these days I'm going to leave and you guys will establish this organization called the church and here's some things that you ought to be doing. Here's some ways to attract some people and get some folks in the door and this is the way you ought to schedule your service and you ought to have two songs and then you bring the kids down and then you can do some handshaking time and then you can do another song and then take the offering and then maybe somebody will play something over the offering and then the guy will preach and then later on you can all stand to sing and you shake his hand on the way out the door. He didn't start with that, right? Now some of you know that better, right? You understand that kind of stuff. That's exactly the way we do it every single week. One of these days I'm going to preach first just to throw you off. You're going to walk in, I'll already be preaching. You think, what time is it? I don't know what, what's going on? Where were the two songs? And then the kids, and I missed all that stuff. One of these days I'll do that too just to mess with you because I can. But... <laughs> The microphone, right? Clint, you know what I'm talking about, right? Jesus, though, he didn't start with how to organize the church or the church service. He started with, what do you believe? Because the truth is, if we just gather together and we sing some Bible kind of songs, and we hear a good inspirational speech from somebody who stands up here with a microphone and maybe references the scripture every once in a while, and we're not a church, we're just an inspirational group trying to feel better about ourselves. Jesus says, what do you believe? And that's going to be our focus. That's our foundation. And so everything in our church, everything about our lives individually and collectively hinges on our answer to that question. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want you to buckle in. All right. And we're, we're going to drink from a fire hose for about the next 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. Here it Here it comes. All right? I'm just going to pour it on you. And you're going to have to go back and listen to the podcast to catch all the stuff because we're going to roll. You ready? i got five irreducible beliefs about Jesus Christ. Five foundational things that if they are not all there, then we have nothing. And if you do not understand these things, then your faith is incomplete. Yes, you may believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm not trying to question your salvation. But your faith will be incomplete and you will not have a full understanding of who Jesus is. And I think it's so crucial that we're going to spend the next few moments talking about it. Some of this may be review for you, and that's fine. I hope it's reinforcement, not just review. Some of it may be brand new, and you say, "Oh man, I don't even. What are you talking about?" I'll be in the back as we leave. Ask me any question. If I don't know the answer, I'll make up a good one. No, I'll, I'll find you. I'll find you the answer. All right, we'll we'll look at this. Five irreducible beliefs. P, Peter was asked, and the disciples were asked, "What do you believe about Jesus?" And leaving here this morning, you can say these are the five things, foundationally, I believe about Jesus. The first is Jesus is God. He is God. What are we talking about here? You'll see it in parentheses. Here. We're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, his godness. He is God. If he is not God, then none of the rest of the stuff makes any difference. Just know that. None of the rest of it makes difference. If he is not God, the Bible is false. 100% false. 100%. We have some evidence now. Here's the way I'm going to work through this. I'm going to give you the thing. You got some space there. I'm going to give you some evidence, sort of some external, some logical type evidence, and then some biblical evidence, and then I'm going to ask the question: Okay, why does that even matter? And then now what? So for each of these, you kind of got that, okay? So if you like to organize and write and stuff, there's some space there. Flip it over on the back. You can follow along, whatever. But here's the evidence for Jesus is God. Here's some of the evidence. Okay, the, the roles that people have assigned to Jesus or the, 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 the identities that they've given him. Some people have, taught, have called, uh, called him a complete liar. They say, well, he was just lying. I mean, he, he's just making it up. He's telling people that he's God. He's claiming that he can forgive sin and whatever. He's just a complete liar. The problem with that logically is that he also told people to be truthful at all times. So if if he is this supposed good teacher, but he's lying to people about being God, he's not a good teacher. Because he told everybody to be truthful. He's a complete hypocrite. He's a liar, they would say. Well, yeah, if he's lying about that, then sure he was. Other people would say, well, he was just nuts. He's just crazy. I mean, he thought he was God. I mean, who in the world thinks they're God? You know, it's like somebody thinking, you know, I'm Batman or something. I mean, it's it's crazy talk. Maybe he just thought he was God's son, and he sent from God, and maybe he was just nuts, though. The problem with that, logically, is that his life doesn't betray a crazy person. His teaching is coherent. It's not rambling. It's very helpful and organized and good. Crazy people don't talk like that. Crazy people don't live like that. They don't live as consistent as Jesus lived. So maybe he's not crazy. And others would say, well, maybe he's just a a legend in the minds of the disciples. You know I mean? He was gone, and so, man, they they thought he was something, so they just wrote these great stories about him. Oh, he's just this legendary figure in their minds, and they made more of him after he was gone than he really was. You know, they sort of put words in his mouth after the fact and and whatever. Uh, The, The problem here is that the disciples would have then had to be the crazy ones, lots of crazy ones, since they were all willing to die for him later on. Now listen I, you know I, I've got some legendary figures in my mind, you know some some really you know people that are way up there but but odds are I'm not dying for their legend. Well you better tell me that this person wasn't as great as they were or I'm going to kill you. All right, they were awful. I'm just telling you. They were terrible. I promise you. You know, Mark not as great as I've made him out to be. I promise. I'm not dying for Mark legend. But you get what I'm saying, right? They all died for the supposed legend of Jesus. Christ. It doesn't make any sense. He couldn't have been a liar. He could have been crazy. He couldn't have been a legend. The biblical evidence, on the other hand, points to the fact that Jesus is God. Why? Because he claimed to be. Over and over and over and over, he claimed to be able to forgive sin. What did the Pharisees say? Only God can forgive sin, Jesus says. How about that? How about that? And he kind of left them hanging. Isn't it great how Jesus does that? Only God can forgive sin. Well, really? Really? Well, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. Oh, hey, look at me. I mean, thats that's, he claimed to forgive sin. He he claimed to be able to eliminate death. He claimed to be the truth, not just a messenger of truth. What did he say in John 14, 6? I am the way, what? The truth. Not a, a channel for truth. I am the truth. He claimed to be the judge of the world. He claimed, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount series, he claimed that his words were equal with God the Father. You've heard it said this. Let me tell you what it really means. Let me explain God's words. How can I do that? Because I'm God. He claimed that he could receive worship. He claimed that to know him is to know the Father. To see him is to see the Father. To receive him is to receive the Father. He claimed that only through him can anyone know God or come to God. Now he must have been crazy if that ain't true. Both his friends and his enemies accused him, or at least acknowledged in his friend's case, that he did claim to be God. Do you know why they crucified him? For what? For blasphemy. Because he is making himself out to be God. The Pharisees knew it. And later writings, of course, in the New Testament point to the fact that his followers clearly understood him to be God incarnate, God in human flesh. Jesus, according to Scripture and according to logic, is God. The evidence supports that Jesus was who he said he was, God in the flesh. Now, why in the world does that even matter? Why does it matter? Because if he is God, follow this, if he is God, then God has come to earth, right? And if God has come to earth and he has come to be with and reside among sinful people who hate him with their unbelief and with their life. And if he has come to be with sinful people, then he must love sinful people. I am a sinful person, therefore he must love me. And if I am loved, then I am accepted and I am valued by God. The fact that Jesus is God proves that God loves us and came not only to demonstrate, but to to really show and to fulfill his love for us. So what now? Well, I can stop chasing love from all the wrong places. I can stop trying to be approved by everybody and everything stop trying to work so hard to be accepted by everyone. Realize that I'm not alone. I'm not rejected. I, I'm not despised. I, I'm not criticized. I'm not cast out and abandoned by God, but I'm loved by him because He came to earth to demonstrate His love. And as a result, I can love others and I can love myself because of God's love toward me. I can be available to other people. I can pursue relationship with other people because that's what God has done for me and as a church we can know how to love one another. How do we know what it means to love one another? We look at Jesus. Not in a cliche, kumbaya, sit around the campfire and throw sticks in it and make promises we don't intend to keep kind of thing at church camp. But in a real way, we look at Jesus and we say, this is what he did. This is who he was. This is how he loved. And therefore, we love one another that way. And as a church, we are challenged to go reach out to people who are not among us. Why? Because that's what God did. The love of God changes everything about us. Now, the first one is longer than the next four, I'll just tell you that. So take a breath. That's a lot of stuff. We'll have it on the podcast. You can go and listen to it. Jesus is God. For a second, Jesus is sinless. Sinless. What are we talking about? We're talking about the virgin birth of Christ. Now, just so you know, we are talking about the fact that Jesus was conceived without a sexual union between Joseph and Mary. We are not talking about anything about Mary and her status. She later on had more children. She was not conceived by a virgin. Jesus and Jesus alone was. Understand that. It's the only thing biblically we have any evidence of. Mary was simply the vessel through whom God birthed his son. Was she a special lady? Seems like it. Was there anything more special about her? Doesn't seem like it. That's it. Just understand that. And so Jesus is the focus. He is the one who is sinless, okay? Now, the logical evidence for this really comes to us as we read the Scripture, but we start to think through what Joseph, the, the engaged husband of Mary, what he was thinking. So he finds out that his fiancée, before they're married, before they've, they've had a sexual union, he finds out she's pregnant. Of course he's devastated. She's cheated on him. She's had a sexual relationship with somebody else and she's gotten pregnant as a result of it. And so if you know the story, maybe you went to Sunday school a long time ago and you know the story, you've gone to church on Christmas, you understand he decided what? He's going to dismiss her quietly. He doesn't want any more shame for her. Certainly doesn't want shame on himself or dishonoring. And so he's just going to get rid of her quietly. And then all of a sudden he changes his mind and he marries her. What? That doesn't make any sense, right? Why would a guy who knows that the rest of his life is going to be shamed because of this illegitimate son that his wife claims came from somewhere, and he's not really the father, why would he welcome all of that shame and disrepute? Well, the only logical answer is that what the Bible says actually happened. That one night Joseph laid down to go to sleep and he had a dream. And in that dream an angel appeared to him and said, hey man, it's all true. What she's telling you that the, the Holy Spirit has put this child, I mean, that's true. And so you can go and marry her with no problems. It's logical. The biblical evidence comes from sources here. Uh, Jesus was labeled the son of Mary. He was the supposed son of Joseph. They didn't really know. People in the Bible, it's recorded there, weren't sure exactly who his father was. What does that point to? Well, maybe his father wasn't of this earth, you understand. Not only that, but his life, I mean, his character points to the fact that this guy was different. The the qualities that would normally not coexist in people, perfect truth and perfect love... coexisted in jesus he, he was the perfect example he lived an incredible life never a false step never a wrong note free from all prejudice the perfect combination of every perfect human and divine characteristic all in one and later on of course the writings in the new testament paul in particular in second corinthians 5 called him sinless now why does that matter why does it matter well i'll say this It matters the virgin birth because if Jesus had an earthly father, what would he have inherited? An earthly sinful nature, right? So he would have been by nature a sinner. Jesus, however, did not have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father, and so by nature he could be sinless. If Jesus is sinless, then he was able to fulfill God's demands in the law. And if he is sinless, then he can represent me and you before the father, as the scripture says. And if he is sinless, then guess what? I don't have to be. I can't be anyway, right? I am loved because he is God, and I am humbled, really, because he is sinless, and I'm not. So what now? What do you do as a result of that? You know, it's one thing to believe that. It's one thing to, to acknowledge, okay, yeah. What do you do? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm free now to live without the pressure of being perfect. Because guess what? I ain't. Don't say amen to that. I, I'm not. All right. I'm free to live without that pressure. I don't have to be, and I can't be good enough, ever. I can't do it. I don't have to always know what to do and say. And I'll just tell you this, that's one of the great things about being a pastor, is you feel like you always got to know what to do and say, especially on Sunday morning around 10 o'clock. But I'm free from that. I don't have to have all the answers, right? I'm free to let myself and others off the hook when I make a mistake or my imperfections. As a church, we're free not to have to be cool, Now, we think we're pretty cool, right? You wouldn't be here if you didn't think it was kind of cool to be here. But we, you know what? We're probably not the coolest place around, you know? I mean, it's no offense, but we're probably not. But we're off the hook. We don't have to be cool. We just need to believe what Jesus told us to believe and love people, love God with all of our heart. That's what we do. We can be who God has called us to be and be confident that that is enough. We can make some mistakes. We can even sin and still live in relationship with each other and certainly with God because we're not expecting sinless perfection from each other but only from Jesus Christ. He's God. He's sinless. Thirdly, He is Savior. He is Savior. What are we talking about? We're talking about His substitutionary death. Fancy way of saying He died in my place. Now, the evidence points overwhelmingly to the fact that Jesus did indeed die on a cross. No rational historian has ever claimed that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. History tells us it is a fact that he lived and that he died on a cross and he was buried. It's a fact. Like I said, no rational historian. Now, the biblical evidence tells us what the cross did. That the cross satisfied the wrath of God, that God was in his holiness rightfully, his anger would be poured out on sin, and that at the cross, Jesus, this sinless, perfect, holy person, would be punished in our place. And so the, the wrath of God is now satisfied, which means that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? God ain't mad at you. He mad at you. Now, we understand wrath a little differently from what God's biblical wrath actually is. But guess what it also means? You don't have to be punished for your sins. Not only is God not angry with you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're covered. God's wrath has been satisfied. It also declares us righteous before God. You know, we're we're born the wrong way, if you understand. By default, it's hell. It's sin. By default. We don't just choose that at some point. By default. We have to be made different. And guess what? You can try all you want, can't you? You can't make yourself any different. You cannot change really who you are. Only Jesus can do that. And you know that. Only Jesus can be the one who, through Him, we are declared righteous. The death of cross, the death of Christ on the cross, makes an exchange: our life for His. And so, instead of what's in my bank account, which is just a bunch of sin and rottenness, I get all that was in Jesus' bank account: all righteousness, all perfection, imputed to me, and it cleans out my account. And now I stand before God with all the righteousness of Jesus Christ in my account, and only that. But the cross puts us in the right relationship with God. Paul talked about it's reconciling power. It makes things right. It gets us back into relationship. What was broken has now been mended. As God, Jesus was able to bridge the gap between sinful humans and God. And as a man, Jesus was able to take the place of sinful humans. So why does that matter? It matters because I'm forgiven. And you're forgiven. I owed a debt. And Jesus paid it and was no longer held against me. I'm free from the penalty of my sin. free from the power of my sin. Every other religion, by the way, every other religion teaches that you've got to do something, earn something, work really hard, do these things, and then one day maybe you'll receive this salvation that's sort of dangling out there somewhere that you're not really sure of. Maybe it'll be there for you when you die if you just work hard enough. Do you realize that only Christianity, biblical Christianity tells you not what you must do but what God has done and it's a period at the end of the sentence it's period here's what God has done period not what you must do but what God has done in Jesus Christ so what now well I, I can live as if I don't have to make up for my sin you ever been there some of you spent years decades trying to make up for something you did And you just poured guilt and shame and condemnation on yourself. Well, if I just feel bad enough about it, then I guess God will forgive me for it because, boy, he knows I really feel bad about this. Yeah, I don't know if God shakes his head at us, but if I were him, I'd shake my head at that. So you mean to tell me that I left heaven and came to earth and lived perfectly to fulfill the law and then I died a death that later on I, I really explained this all to you helped you understand in the New Testament that all you need to do is believe in me for your salvation and you don't have to earn anything and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation has now been literally been removed from you as far as the east is from the west and yet you're going to feel bad to make me think you're real serious about this. What? It doesn't even it doesn't it makes no sense. So what do we do? We live with joy, knowing that salvation has been purchased and given to us. It's not something we have to earn. I have a new identity, new meaning, new purpose, a new life. And I now trust Jesus as my only solution for life. He's my salvation. I trust him. And maybe for some this morning, you need to receive his salvation. Because you've been trying to do all the right stuff. And you've never humbled yourself before the Lord and said, God, it doesn't matter what I try. I can't get to you. I'm going to stop trying. And I'm just going to receive what you've done. God, you came to me. And I'm going to place my faith in you and what you have done, not in me and what I can do. What you have done. Fourth, he is alive. He is alive. Now, what we're talking about is the bodily resurrection of Christ. The external logical evidence is the empty tomb. The Jewish and Roman sources both agree there was no body in the tomb. Literally. Nobody and no body. You see that? Are you still awake? Okay. Come on. That's funny. Um, It's late in the sermon. It's still funny. Come on. You know? There was nothing there. Nobody was there. Now, there's several theories that go around about this. Some people say the body was stolen. The disciples took it. But guess what? They weren't even expecting Jesus to, to be resurrected. They didn't understand what he meant. Why would they go and steal the body if they're not even expecting an empty tomb? That wouldn't make any sense. How in the world could they overpower all the Roman soldiers? Well, the you know the Pharisees conspired to tell them, you know, to, to act like they were asleep. Guess what? You, what happened to you if you're a Roman soldier and you slept on the job? Not only do you lose your job, but you lose your head. You ain't going to sleep. I don't care how much money they pay, you're not going to sleep. So the stolen body theory did not make any sense. Other people said, well, he just kind of swooned. He just acted like he was dead. You know, I mean, he passed out because, I mean, you go through all that stuff, you probably pass out, too. And then when he got into the cool, dark place there in the tomb, whew, he, he kind of revived a little bit. And then apparently somehow he pushed this 2,000 pound stone out of the way, whipped some Roman soldiers and walked out of the tomb. After he had been beaten for two days, after he had been crucified for six hours, he was able to do all that. Doesn't make any sense. Some people say, "Well, they were hallucinating. They just thought they saw him." So, hundreds of people at one time all had the same hallucination. I've never had a hallucination. Maybe you have, but I doubt that hundreds of people with you all had the same one at the same time. Not usual. You also have to look at the radical change in the disciples. Guess what? They were depressed when Jesus died. They thought he was gone. They thought it was over. And you know what? They were radically different after what? After they saw him bodily, real, resurrected. Why does all this stuff matter? Because if he's alive, then he has power over death. And if he has power over death, then there's life beyond the grave. And if there's life beyond the grave, then I don't have to be afraid of even death. And if I don't have to be afraid of even death, then what on earth do I have to be afraid of? I'm fearless. Not because of me, because I'm so good and strong, but because the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ has conquered what should be my greatest fear. And if he can take care of that, then I guarantee you he can take care of how to pay the bills. He can take care of how to calm my nerves in this particular situation when I get a little fired up. He can take care of those things. Not even death can defeat Jesus or his church. Death is not permanent. And we don't have to face it alone. Jesus will escort us. We are not permanently separated from our loved ones. And we have a greater purpose and destiny than just this life because Jesus rose again. So what now? Well, I can live a transformed life. I can have the power of the resurrection applied to every situation, every relationship in my life. And as a church, we can preach and we can reach out confidently knowing that ours is a faith based on a living Savior. Number five, he is returning. Now, hold on just a second. Are you ready to pack up? But let me get through this, all right? A little more fire hose for you. Take a breath. Write it down. Here we go. Last little bit. He is returning. What are we talking about? talking about the bodily return of Jesus Christ, the bodily, like, real return, not like some ghost-like food, the real return. Here he comes back. The, 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 the logic, the evidence for this is that every civilization known to man, by and large, nearly all of them, have had some concept of life beyond this world, that there's something else that we can't see that one day we'll get to. We also know that if Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, but he they claim he ascended, then where is he right now? Meaning, if he supposedly was resurrected, okay, I can okay, I'll get that. You know, some crazy act of science or whatever. Okay, whatever. They you know, clear and you know they got him and you know they didn't have that stuff, but they got him anyway. And you know they they take the AED and they revive Jesus and okay, but you know, but what happened then? Okay, where did he go after that? Because if he didn't ascend into heaven and isn't coming back one day, if he's not there preparing a place for us like he says in John chapter 1, then where did he go? Did he die again? There's no record of it. His disciples didn't act as if he was not in heaven, ready to return again. Certainly the New Testament acts as it could happen at any time. They truly believed that he was going to return. And Jesus certainly, we know from the biblical evidence, he promised to return several times. He promised that. Why does it matter? Well, because of the promised return of Jesus, I'm hopeful. Even when life stinks. Even when it's no good. Why? Because this isn't all there is. This isn't the end. This isn't, well, good grief, this is all I get. (laughs) Man, what a terrible way to live. I know that He'll make all things new, including me and my body. He'll make everything brand new. So what now? I live with hope knowing that things will change one day. I live by faith and not by sight. I live with my eyes on something different besides my issues and my problems. And as a church, we can endure even these very turbulent times because we know the truth of the book of Revelation, that Jesus wins. And so, this week, two challenges. First for you and then for us. Let me encourage you this week, as you look at all those things there on the screen, to live your life with Jesus as the hero of your life. Lord, you are God, so I I will rest in your love this week. Lord, you are sinless. I am humbled in your presence. Lord, you are my Savior. I'm, I'm forever changed. I'm a new person. Lord, you are alive, so I give my fear to you. Lord, you are returning, so I will not let this world defeat me. And then as a church, let me encourage us to do church with Jesus as the hero. So, Lord, you are God, so we will pursue people like you have pursued us. Lord, you are sinless, so we'll worship you, not our traditions, not our preferences. We worship you. Lord, you are our Savior, so we'll we'll reach people for you, not for us. Lord, you are alive, so we're not going to be boring in church. You're alive. Lord, you are returning, so we're going to get ready, and we'll be prepared. Who do you say that He is? Maybe you need to think about it. But ultimately, you need to surrender to who He is. Because just acknowledging these truths is not enough. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I see that logically it makes sense. No, no, no. It is a matter of belief. It is a matter, the Bible says, of giving your whole heart everything about you to the Lord. That is when we show what we truly believe about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. lots of stuff this morning, maybe with your head bowed and eyes closed, you just sort of reflect on maybe something the Lord has spoken to you. In no way do I want to rush through any of that stuff, but boy, there's a lot to it in there. So maybe one of these things has struck you in particular, you say, Lord, this is an area of my life that you've revealed to me this morning that needs to be submitted to you. And certainly maybe there's, there's your whole life, as I told you, that maybe it needs to be submitted. And for the very first time, you'd place your faith in Jesus Christ, calling out to him for the forgiveness of your sin. And in belief that he is the son of God. The one who is the risen living savior. You can pray that right there where you are. Asking the Lord for forgiveness. Calling out to him in faith. Trusting him. If you'd like to pray, I'll be down here in just a few moments. You certainly can come and pray. I'll be happy to pray with you. Pray for you. I'll stick around after the service. We can talk a little bit if you got some questions. Who do you say that he is? It's the question all of life hinges on. Lord Jesus, we say this morning that you are God, that you are sinless, that you are our Savior, that you are alive, and that you are returning. We declare the truth of Scripture this morning in this place. Lord, we know that that doesn't have any particular effect other than simply to agree with you. And Lord, we pray that in so doing that you would change our hearts to get in line with your will for our lives and for our church, whatever that may be. Lord, we thank you for showing us and revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ. We place our faith in him. We know, Lord, as a song we'll sing, that there is something about that name, that no other name is to be worshipped but the name of Jesus. And that's our prayer this morning. Lord, I pray for the folks this morning that have a particular area of life they need to surrender or maybe the whole of life that they need to give to you. This morning, I pray it be so. Show them your love. Reveal your son in them. Lord, we thank you again for the truth of the scripture, for how it affects our lives. May we live it out individually and as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close with this song?